Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. This is our 65th episode, so we return to what we call flyover country. This next case is an Iowa case, although it's practically a South Dakota and Minnesota case as well. The location for the crime is in Iowa, but in the extreme northwest corner where the three states meet. So while the crime occurred in Iowa, the victims and suspects were mainly from South Dakota and Minnesota, and it's an older case, but one still talked about today. But before we get to the case, let's go through the business. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure that I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thank you so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. While the history of European settlers in America lacks the depth of the history of their homelands, the idea that America doesn't have a rich history going back thousands of years just simply isn't true. For centuries, the Native American people of North America were left out of history books. The myth spread by the settlers was that they were a race that lacked intelligence, engineering, and trade. Maybe this made it easier for people to look aside as entire tribes were wiped out by disease, displacement, and destruction. Even when I was a child, I was taught about Christopher Columbus quote-unquote discovering America. The truth is finally starting to be shown to the world. America has a rich history going back thousands of years, and that is thanks to the original settlers of North America. Historians are finally recognizing that with sites like Cahokia, a site just outside modern-day St. Louis, settled around 2,000 years ago and built into a city of over 1,000 people with 120 known earthen mound buildings, the original settlers of America were very similar to other humans at the time. Mound building practice that dates back even further than 2,000 years was practiced across what is now the United States and Canada by various Native American tribes. Archaeological digs conducted on these mounds in Minnesota have located artifacts that originated from all reaches of the country, including volcanic glass from Wyoming, mica from the Appalachians, and marine shells from the ocean. This proves there was an extensive trade network across North America hundreds of years before European settlers arrived. But there was one thing that was very different between the original settlers and their European counterparts. The original settlers saw themselves as custodians of the earth. They worshipped the natural beauty of the world around them, and in places like the Sioux River Valley in northwest Iowa, they talked about nature and referred to it as Gitche Manitou, the Great Spirit. It was there, amongst the gorgeous red quartzite rocks and flowing prairies, that they buried some of their deceased and talked to the Great Spirit. It was a place of reverence for them for hundreds of years. Then, 50 years ago, evil walked upon the sacred lands and took the lives of four young people. This is the story of the Gitche Manitou murders. On the evening of November 17, 1973, five teenagers from nearby Sioux Falls, South Dakota, traveled to Gitche Manitou Nature Preserve just across the Iowa border. Gitche Manitou is a 93-acre preserve that sits along the Big Sioux River a waterway that forms the border between Iowa and South Dakota. 
The northern edge of the park sits along the Iowa border with Minnesota, making this slice of land just a stone's throw from either of its neighboring states. The preserve itself has a small prairie, an old quarry, and a mostly collapsed rock structure that was once a picnic shelter. Its wooden roof has been gone for some time, and all that remains are the stone walls and a fireplace. The entire structure is covered in graffiti and is a well-known hangout for teens that want to have a party and enjoy some beverages. Things weren't much different in 1973 when five teenagers decided to head out to the park on a cool November evening. Things might have been a little different when it came to dating in 1973, as one of the members of the group, 13-year-old 7th grader Sandra Chesky, joined her 17-year-old boyfriend and some friends for an evening of playing some guitar and smoking a little marijuana. Accompanying them were 15-year-old Michael Hadrath, 18-year-old Stuart Bade, and his 14-year-old brother Dana Bade. It is said the group of teens were kids that kept to themselves and were into music and smoking a little pot. They were outsiders from the mainstream, but decent kids according to most who knew them. The boys were said to be best of friends and did pretty much everything together. And the only reason I mention that things are a little bit different, it kind of just catches my eye. I understand it's only a four-year difference between 17 years and 13 years, but I think in today's world, a either a senior in high school or I guess... Yeah, in this case, it's November, so at 17, you're probably a senior in high school. Maybe you're a junior, but still dating a, a seventh grader from middle school would, I think, be looked upon a little differently nowadays than it maybe was back then. I mean, we are going to talk later about some people bringing up some age differences and, and whatnot, but it just, to me, you know, I've got three boys that are 15, 13, 11, and I can't imagine my... 13 year old son dating a, a junior in high school or senior in high school uh, if that was today so I think part of the story being that it's 50 years old there's some differences there but for the most part as everybody said these are just doing what teenagers would do now which is jump in a car go out to a remote place and you know Nowadays, it would be probably playing music over a Bluetooth speaker and, and having some drinks. Back then, they were you know, brought a guitar along and, and were singing along and, and smoking a little marijuana. Well, the group from Sioux Falls hopped into Stewart's blue van and headed across the border to the preserve. They found a nice place to sit around a campfire and was next to the sounds of the river with quartzite outcroppings and trees around the clearing. They started their evening by building the fire and playing some tunes on the guitar and singing along with the music. After about 20 minutes of enjoying their time at the preserve, they heard a sound from the woods like the snapping of a stick, but they thought it must be a deer or something and went back to their relaxing evening. What they had heard was not a deer, but a trio of brothers named David, Allen, and James Fryer, who had been out hunting all day. According to sources, the brothers had tried to hunt pheasants earlier in the day, but had no luck, and decided to switch over to hunting deer. Finding no deer, they stumbled across a group of teens around the campfire and hatched a plan. There is debate amongst law enforcement, as some think the plan all along was to kill the teens, but the brothers would later claim they heard the teens talking about marijuana and decided they wanted to steal it. The brothers would later claim they thought narcotics officers could shoot drug offenders on sight, so they returned to their truck, and Alan and David got some shotguns and set up on a rocky outcrop overlooking the campfire. 
Without warning, the two brothers opened fire on the teens, and Roger Essam was killed instantly in the opening gunfire. Stuart Bade was hit by a second volley of gunfire and fell wounded, screaming, I've been shot, it hurts. The remaining teens ran for some nearby woods and took cover behind some trees. The brothers came down from the outcrop and ordered the teens out of the woods. When Michael and Sandra came out of the woods, Michael asked them who they were. Alan shot Michael in the arm and told them they were narcotics officers. Both Sandra and Michael fell to the ground, and Alan kicked Sandra and told her to get up and stop playing around. Alan then told them that Roger had been shot with a tranquilizer round and he was just sleeping. Alan then marched the wounded Michael and Stuart, along with Sandra and Dana, out to a nearby road. Initially, Sandra was tied up and thrown into Stuart's van, but eventually she was brought back out, and when a truck pulled up driven by James Fryer, Alan grabbed Sandra and put her in the truck and then took off with her. David and James rounded up the remaining teens by the roadside. As Alan and Sandra drove off in the truck, she looked back and saw James and David Fryer standing with the three remaining teens. It was the last time anyone would see the boys alive. Alan drove Sandra around for a while, maintaining the ruse that he was a police officer and he was trying to keep her from getting in trouble. He claimed that he was the boss of the other two officers and that they would do anything he told them to. Alan then drove back to near where the attack had occurred and James got into the truck and the three of them drove to an abandoned farm. Dave had taken the teen's van at this point to make it less likely someone would stop out with it and discover the bodies of the boys. The farmhouse was owned by Alan's employer, but no one lived there. The brothers met back up at the farmhouse where James sexually assaulted Sandra and the brothers kept her there for the rest of the night. In the morning, Alan was given the task of getting rid of Sandra. He filled the truck up from the large red gas tank of the farm and started driving away from the farm. Sandra must have felt that she was being driven to her death, but Alan told her he was going to drop her off at home because she was too young to be busted by the cops. Sandra immediately reported the crime to the local police, who at first did not believe her story. She seemed too composed and collected, and she spoke about the experience with a matter-of-fact attitude. And this is something that we have talked about before. Everybody's experience with a traumatic experience or death is different. You can't make a full analysis of someone's either involvement or lack of involvement in any crime just based on how they respond after the crime. It does happen, and it's just human nature to kind of make that link that if somebody is extremely distraught, then they may be doing it for dramatic purpose. If they're not distraught at all, then they're too calm and are possibly involved. I mean, it doesn't matter how someone responds. It's almost always going to be looked at in some way as an inappropriate response to the situation. And again, I think a lot of the times, especially if somebody believes that somebody's involved or at least thinks that they might be involved in the crime, they'll make their own jump to conclusions about that and use whatever is presented to them to make that fit. So again, if if somebody is crying nonstop after they lose their loved one, well, then they're being overdramatic and, and compensating for a lack of, of true emotion. Or 
if they're not crying at all, then they're this cold-hearted, unemotional person they must not have felt anything for the person. So we make these assumptions and while there is some value because sometimes either the callous or matter-of-fact attitude can point towards somebody's involvement in a crime, it, it can't be the sole part of it and you really have to use whatever physical evidence, whatever eyewitness evidence you have to, to create the whole picture. And, and again, you can use that person's response as part of your investigation. But in this case, it definitely seemed like the police immediately went to, she's 13 years old. She's telling us four of her friends were killed, or at least one she believes was killed, although she was told he was tranquilized. And it did say in the story that she believed uh, the Alan Fryer saying that her, her friend was tranquilized, that Roger was not dead. But as far as she knew, she at least she had to know that Michael was shot right next to her. Uh, Stuart was complaining that he was shot and that it hurts. I have to imagine even at 13, she kind of figured that not all of this was tranquilizers and she had to have thought as she was driving away in that truck that that her friends were not going to make it that she couldn't have honestly believed that these guys were were police officers uh, especially after she was sexually assaulted by them so at the time that she's reporting this she had to have understood the full reality of what had happened and I honestly think the the whole matter of fact, her very good recollection of what happened was more of a defense mechanism on her part that she couldn't emotionally attach herself to what had happened because she honestly couldn't comprehend it. Because when she left that day with to go hang out with her boyfriend and his three best friends, there's absolutely no way that she could have assumed that the following morning that four of them would be dead and she would have been sexually assaulted the night before it just it's too much i think for the brain and for everything to be able to be processed so she was literally just in almost a robotic mode out of defense but the police took it as they didn't believe her they thought she could be lying if this really happened which they, I don't think they even believe that that it happened, that if it did happen, why would she be let go? Why would she be able to report this? So there was a lot of questions. And as she's reporting this, uh, a couple that were out for a drive in their new vehicle stopped by Gitche Manitow Park and stumbled across the bodies of Dana, Michael, and Stuart along the road. They had been executed by James and David Fryer, and their bodies were left in a ditch along the road. It would take until the next day for Roger's body to be found by the campfire. So remember, they walked the, th the, the four teens out. Roger was killed instantly at the campfire. So there must have been some distance from the road to the campfire. And obviously this is done on purpose by the teens because you want to stay out of the view of law enforcement. Yes, the van's there, but... A police officer would have to decide he's going to stop, check out the van, and then make some type of a walk through the park to try to find these kids. You're not, you know, going to be 
partying right next to the roadway. So when they find these teens at first, they don't even know that there's a fourth uh, involved in this. But I'm guessing as more information is coming out, as as people uh, people are talking with, with Sandra and whatnot, eventually they're going to go walk to this campsite and they're, they're going to find Roger's body. And while investigators now understood that part of the story Sandra was telling was true, they still felt something wasn't right. Uh, she was the youngest member of the group, and she had been left alive and able to identify the killers. So she was put through numerous oral interviews and made to retell the story many times. And a polygrapher was summoned, and she passed the lie detector test as well. And again, this comes back to kind of that age thing. Not that the Fryer brothers, they're like 21, 24, and 29 at this time, I think. So not like it's a bunch of... 13 year olds that did the killing and they were more her age or classmates of hers but it was initially there was some reservations on the fact that she's this 13 year old seventh grader who's hanging out with the teens that are anywhere from like a year or two to five years older than her and so just on a surface value it looks a little strange that she would willingly go off into the, you know, this preserve with four older, older boys. And then again, just the idea that these guys are so ruthless that they're willing to kill the other four boys executing three of them. And yet they're going to let her live again. Police just, this didn't make sense. This, this isn't what they would typically see in a mass murder situation. Uh, typically, you know, all the victims would be killed especially somebody who was brought to a specific location and sexually assaulted by one of the brothers. It just, police were apprehensive. Unfortunately for Sandra, that meant she had to go through all of these oral interviews. I'm sure she was asked more times than we can count for her to tell the story, to say what happened. And this is a tactic used by police, as we've talked about in the past, when you tell the truth, you just tell the truth. You just repeat what happened from your memory. If you're making up part of the story, after you might be able to make that same story two, three, four times, but eventually details are going to change. Eventually you're going to forget what you said. Eventually you're going to try to make up stuff to make other stuff in the story make sense. And so when you get asked to tell the same story four or five times, investigators are looking for differences in the story and Sandra didn't have any and they finally went to the point of saying let's have her take a lie detector test because we still think she's involved somehow that there's no way that these guys would have let her live if she wasn't in on it somehow and so they put her through this polygraph test and she passes the polygraph so now investigators have to believe this crazy insane terrible story is true everything that she said is true so now they have to investigate it that way so they eventually after several days they put her into a, a police car and start driving around and they're looking for this farmhouse that she was taken to and it's said that after she was put in the truck with alan that alan drove around for a while and this is when he was telling her that, that that he was the boss and that they were police officers and kind of keeping up that ruse. Well, because he's driving around 
for it was an extended period of time she can't quite pinpoint where they went after they left the park and eventually how they ended up at the farmhouse it wasn't like they drove straight from the park to the farmhouse where she could just remember okay we took a right here and we took a left there there was a lot of stuff going on plus she had just gone through this traumatic experience watching one of her friends die or or be tranquilized and then she's standing next to michael when he shot in the arm so to go through this experience and then expect to perfectly recall where you went when you don't even know where this place is in the first place so it took a few days of her driving around with with police officers and then it was on november 29th uh, so 12 days after the attack she spots the farmhouse where she'd been taken and sexually assaulted and this was because the large red gasoline tank that alan had used to fill up the truck uh, was it was either right next to the house or right next to the barn but it was just very visible from the roadway and she just immediately knew that after having probably looked at hundreds of farmhouses out in the country this is the only one that had this bright red tank next to it and it just happened that as she identified the house alan fryer drove by in the same truck you've been driving the night of the murders uh, and this is because the house as mentioned belonged to alan's employer who's a local farmer and Sandra pointed to Alan and told the investigator, that's him, that's the boss. So they stop the truck and they take Alan into custody. And with Alan identified, it didn't take long for investigators to figure out his two accomplices were his brothers. And the only problem with in the initial part of the investigation was that one of the brothers, James, had actually been incarcerated at the time of the murders. But as they look into this, they quickly discover James was part of a work release program, and he was supposed to return to the jail that day, but his brother David called the jail and pretended to be James' boss and asked him if he could keep James for an overnight de overtime detail into the evening, and the jail agreed to the request. So James celebrated his extra evening of freedom with his brothers by participating in the murders of four teens and sexually assaulting Sandra. So who are these monsters, these Friar brothers? Well, one difficult part about researching this case is, yes, there is some information out there about the case because it is a pretty famous case in that area, but the case is 50 years old, so there's not a ton of information. It wasn't, didn't have true crime sleuths and amateur internet detectives back in 1973. So what we have is just the reports from the press at the time of the incident and then during the trial. So there's not a whole lot of background on these guys. Uh, I was able to find some of the appeals that they made uh, after their trials so that, and that had some background information. So what I know from that is that Alan was the oldest. He was born in 1944, so he was 29 at the time of the murders. David was 24 and was born in 1949, and James was the youngest. He was 21 and born in 1952. Uh, Alan was said to be developmentally delayed. Uh, he dropped out of school in the seventh grade at the age of 16. So he either repeated a bunch of grades or he started late or a combination of both because at 16 he should be in... 10th or 11th grade and it, it said he didn't even complete the 7th grade at age 16 and an IQ test said he had an IQ of 87 
and he had a history of crime, including stealing cars. In 1968, his brother David and him were arrested for stealing cars and transporting them across state lines. Uh, as for David, he had the previously mentioned history with, with stealing cars, and it was found that the shotgun he used on the night of the murders was stolen. And James, as I mentioned, was serving time uh, during these murders, but I couldn't find out what his original sentence was. So these are these are three brothers that uh, I think to say that their family is uh, swimming in the shallow end of the gene pool is an understatement. Uh, they are not intelligent. Uh, it, it did say that Alan was married and he was a hard worker, so he was able to somewhat provide. He worked as a farmhand and, and fixing some of the farm machinery and that kind of stuff. So it's it's not as if he doesn't have mental capacity it's just limited and we're going to find the same thing with james now after they were arrested the brothers all gave statements to the police alan claimed the shooting was in self-defense and the teens had actually started shooting at them first investigators challenged him on this and on his third attempt at telling the story he admitted to shooting at the teens at the campfire but he tried to downplay it by saying the teens were drinking and smoked marijuana and all they wanted to do was steal the weed uh, David also tried to claim self-defense, but after being challenged, he admitted the real story. So these two guys are going to use this, pro, you know, predetermined. Hey, if we get caught, just say it was self-defense. Line. I don't know if they don't realize that police are going to search this crime scene, and there's going to be no other fired cartridge cases other than these shotgun rounds uh, that the brothers fired uh, there's going to be no weapons found on these teens there's there's going to be nothing to indicate that the teen shot first or had any weapons in the first place so the self-defense argument again that leads me to believe that these guys are just not intelligent enough to figure out that they can't just tell a story and without any evidence to back it up and that the police are just going to say oh okay well if it's self-defense, no big deal. You guys are free to go. Uh, and, and then again, this is where oftentimes you'll see, if you watch police interrogations or interviews, police officers will let somebody, quote-unquote, hang themselves with a story. They'll just let the person keep talking, keep giving information, keep uh, providing them stuff, even if they know that it's false. At first, you don't really call them out on it. You just let them tell the whole story. And then you use the evidence that you have from your investigation to challenge the parts of the story you know not to be true to see if you can get them to slowly change those parts to match what is actually going on until eventually you might have a statement that is, you know, it starts 10% true and it ends up hopefully being 90% true by the time you get through the statement. Or eventually these guys are going to realize they've starting to hang themselves and that's when they ask for a lawyer uh, in this case with the guys not being extremely intelligent it wasn't hard i'm guessing for the the officers to uh, challenge their ridiculous stories and again it took alan three times of telling the story before he got to something that was much closer to the truth and it sounds like david folded after the first time he was challenged and they stuck with this story, and it's it, the investigators said they were surprised how these guys seemed to honestly think that if somebody was c 
committing a narcotics violation like smoking weed that cops could just shoot them and 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 take the weed that was that was their whole thing so whether they were that stupid or whether that this was their only chance of a defense uh, that's what they really went with now james was actually quick to point the fingers at his brothers claiming they were responsible for the murders and he was just along for the ride as for the sexual assault allegations against him by Sandra, he claimed that the sex between Sandra and him had been consensual and she was laughing and having a good time. And so James, again, he's already been incarcerated. I'm assuming the other two have as well for their, their car theft stuff, but he's savvy enough to realize, I think two guns were involved and there's three brothers. So all he has to do, or at least what he's going to try to do, is point to the other two brothers and say, they're the ones that had the guns, they did the killing, I just happened to be there. And that's obviously a much better strategy than the self-defense argument. I mean, it does rely on you throwing your brothers under the bus, but we do see this from time to time when there's a either two or more suspects in a case where they'll point the fingers at each other and say the other person did it and they leave it up to the police to try to prove who actually pulled the trigger because if it goes to a jury trial and the jury can't figure out who actually pulled the trigger in some cases the jury doesn't care and they'll hold both people liable for the crime uh, and that's kind of what is going to happen here uh, but in other cases if you get all you need to do is get one person on the jury convinced that they don't know who actually committed the crime and they're not comfortable with putting somebody in prison for the rest of their life or in a death penalty case putting them up for execution if they don't know that they're the one that actually pulled the trigger so in this case again james is savvy enough at least to use the whole i was there but it wasn't me defense as opposed to the other two that both said, yeah, we were there, but we had reasons for killing uh, the teens. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter. I mean, all, all investigators need to do, they've got Sandra, she's identified them in a lineup, she's identified the place in which the crimes occurred, they're gonna find the guns that were used. It's, it's pretty much, other than the fact that they've got three suspects and two guns, and it's going to come down to, again, charging all these guys with all the murders and just letting the courts figure it out. On February 1st, 1974, David pleads guilty to three charges of murder and one charge of manslaughter. And he would go on to admit to firing the shot that killed Stewart. Uh, so he's, this Stewart's killed execution style he's wounded originally in the gunfire at the the campfire and then he's brought out to the road by the van and david will admit to executing stewart and despite agreeing to the plea deal the judge chooses to sentence david to life without parole and david would go ahead and ask for the death penalty instead saying he couldn't spend his whole life in prison and then he would attempt to get the parole board to overturn his no parole portion of his sentence in 2016 but it was denied so there's a little bit to digest here first off most times when you enter into a plea agreement to avoid a trial there's something working in your favor uh, 
the it's it's a negotiation it's a give and take between the the prosecution and the defense now it might things might have been different back in 1973 or 74 so maybe the rules were a little different or maybe it's just that david didn't understand exactly what he was doing when he signed uh, this plea agreement sometimes the plea agreement just drops the what one of the charges or lowers a charge to a certain degree but then the judge still has the leniency based on sentencing guidelines to sentence based off the crimes you're pleading to so again the plea deal might have dropped it said it was three charges of murder and one charge of manslaughter it, the plea deal might have said hey we're not going to try you for four counts of murder we're going to only do three counts of murder and a manslaughter and if he goes yeah okay cool one less count charge of murder uh, i'll take it the judge is still going to look at it and say hey it's it, i know what this really is it's really four murders but b you still have three murders that you're pleading to uh the sentencing guidelines is life without parole for for three murders doesn't matter if it's three murders or four and maybe david didn't understand this maybe he was really hoping for the the one charge being lowered to result in him getting some form of potential parole uh, but it's very clear that he did not want to spend the rest of his life in prison he'd rather die and we've seen this before we saw this in the case out of spear for south dakota where the the guy sitting on death row was tired of the appeals and waiting and, and basically asked to be executed and the state had to uh had to agree to his request uh in this case he's he's asking for the death penalty but the state's saying no and this is really i mean not to get too far off track here but we'll go down this path a little bit this is where you have people obviously for the death penalty and against the death penalty and people will depending on which side you land on people will argue their case either way and this is often an argument used by the people that are against the death penalty is that putting somebody in prison for the rest of their life knowing that they'll never see the outside for some people that's worse than death for some people to have to live with what they did and never have their freedom again until they just die either kill themselves or die from natural causes that slow deterioration that lack of any control over your life or freedom that's the true punishment whereas you have other people that are for the death penalty that say you know somebody sitting on death row knowing somewhere down the road your life is going to be ended and it's not your choice that's the true punishment again i'm not taking sides on that i'm not going down that political quagmire at this point i'm just saying you have cases like this where some people will say don't put me in prison for the rest of my life just kill me I don't want to sit in prison for the rest of my life and i think if i'm that judge and i know what these guys did which obviously this judge does i'm gonna say i'm gonna give you what you don't want i'm gonna put you in life for the or in prison for the rest of your life with no parole because you you participated in the taking of four innocent young lives there's just no punishment is enough but i'm definitely not giving you what you want now, Allen was put on trial later that month, and he was found guilty of four counts of first-degree murder and was sentenced to four consecutive life terms. And this is also interesting, is there's going to be subtle differences in each of these trials or these plea agreements with what they're being charged with. And 
in like in Alan's case, he was one of the original shooters that shot down into the group of teens of the campfire, but he was not present when the other three were executed. So yes, he participated. He definitely was involved, definitely could have done things to prevent the deaths. He definitely did fire a gun at some point, but he's going to go on trial and he's going to be found guilty of all four murders, even though he pulled the trigger those, those first couple times and likely either he killed Roger or, or his brother David did uh, when they were overlooking the campfire. But still, he's not around when the other three deaths occur, but he's being held responsible for them. And this would actually be part of his appeals, which are going to be denied. Uh, but him saying, I wasn't even there, and yet the jury found me guilty. And it, it came down to the the verbiage that was used, the, the jury instructions that were given by the prosecution on he can be found guilty of these crimes even though he's not there. They felt it was uh, prejudicial to the jury. And ultimately, again, his appeals are denied. And it's just interesting that he gets four consecutive life terms and says nothing about no parole. But four consecutive life terms is long enough that he's not going to see uh, the outside of a prison. However, a daring escape by Alan and James did occur on June 18, 1974. The brothers broke out of jail and stole a vehicle. They fled west and got as far as Gillette, Wyoming, before they were caught and brought back to Iowa. They incurred additional federal charges for their escape and their flight across state lines. And really, when you get to one of these cases where somebody's in prison for the rest of their life, there really isn't a deterrent at this point to trying to make this escape. Unfortunately, you can't punish them more than they've already been punished. Now, oftentimes, if somebody makes an escape attempt, that means they're going to end up at a more secure prison down the road. It means that they're likely going to have less privileges when they're at that prison. So I guess there are some punishments but i mean if you're facing 15 years for an armed robbery and you know you're going to be getting out in eight or nine years and you make that escape attempt those additional charges are going to put you away for longer so there is definitely a risk reward for it whereas in this case these guys are in prison for the rest of their life no matter what there really isn't a risk per se other than what i mentioned before and it's all reward if they can get away but Again, as I've mentioned, these are not the smartest individuals on the planet. Uh, so they're smart enough to be able to make an escape, but obviously uh, not smart enough to be able to not get caught. On December 3rd, 1974, James' trial finally began. He was subjected to an IQ test and was found he had an IQ of only 85 and he had poor behavioral control capabilities. On December 30th, he was found guilty of three counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to life without parole. The additional charges of sexual assault were dropped, so Sandra didn't have to testify to that at trial. And considering the no parole part of the sentence, there was no additional punishment that made it worth her going through another trial. And as I mentioned, all three brothers appealed their sentences, and all three appeals were denied. And this is something we see sometimes where if there's... A truly heinous crime and then another heinous crime of sexual assault on top of it if somebody's being found guilty of the murder and they're being put into prison without the chance of parole 
the state doesn't have to charge out the sexual assault and if somehow some way the the charges were the, the appeal went through there was a mistrial whatever it might be it doesn't mean the state can't charge that person down the road most states don't have statute limitations on sexual assault anymore thanks to dna so or at least if they do it's a, a pretty extended period of time so the the state can always choose down the road to charge them with with the sexual assault if they really need to or feel a desire to and i'm sure they even asked sandra most prosecutors would do you want because this is more about justice for sandra than it is about anything now sometimes the cost of a trial the the prosecution or the state will decide it's not worth it even if the if the victim wants it but in most cases you've got a 13 year old victim you do you really want her getting up in a courtroom and talking about how she was sexually assaulted by by this individual and then potentially asked questions by uh, the defense attorneys and and again we've seen this in the past where defense attorneys it's their job to try to create doubt and they'll do some terrible things ask some terrible questions because it's part of their job when the, when they have a, a victim of something like a sexual assault on the stand so given her age given the fact that James is going away to prison for the rest of his life. It just made sense they didn't did not charge out the sexual assault and do a trial on that. However, Sandra would continue to suffer in the years following the brutal crimes. Not only did she go through a traumatic experience, but she was also treated extremely differently by those in the community after the crime. She was nicknamed the Gitchy Girl, and parents refused to let their kids hang out with her because they thought she was a bad influence. And again, this was a huge story. This is a very quiet uh, part of the country, uh, this area, northwest Iowa. Uh, you know, not a lot of crime going on there in general. So to have this quadruple homicide and, and she's a part of it, uh, this was a huge deal in the newspapers at the time and on the news and everything like that. So everybody knew who she was and... So it didn't take much. I mean, we already know how difficult middle school and high school can be for kids that are that are go through a quote unquote normal life experience. So for her to go through middle school at this point and then high school, having been this girl that went off to party with some older guys and all the all of them died and she was sexually assaulted. I, I just have to imagine, from the sounds of it, she went through a lot of bullying, a lot of, and she was ostracized by her classmates. Uh, you know, again, parents wouldn't let their kids hang out with her because they considered her a bad influence or looked at it as the last time she hung out with other people, they all ended up dead, even though that wasn't her fault. But it basically, she had to go through this period of pure shame and as she said afterwards she was very alone you know she lost friends of hers she lost a boyfriend say what you may about the age difference young love is is strong and you know if you've got true feelings for somebody or what you believe are true feelings for somebody when you're 13 14 15 years old it's hard to convince that person those feelings aren't real because they are they they do feel a strong connection a strong tie and she lost that as well as some friends and then on top of that, it's this 
this treatment of her afterwards. And and on top of that, that there's those same initial feelings that the law enforcement had about her possibly being involved in the crime and maybe she lured the teens into this ambush and that's why she was left alive. Uh, these rumors were pretty persistent even after the the trials and all that kind of stuff. So people still looked at her as potentially being involved, which again is that's salt in the wound if you're a true victim of a crime like she was and people they don't want to even give you victim status they're treating you like a suspect on top of it that's that's again salt in the wound now as to her being left alive in reality investigators believe that alan and his brothers had originally planned to kill sandra and it was supposed to be alan's job the following morning to get rid of her but they do feel that as the time passed that evening and into the morning, Alan at some point realized that Sandra was a human being. And this is different than when Alan was sitting up on the, the rocky outcrop looking down at this group of teens that were singing and, and smoking marijuana. At that point, there was distance. As I mentioned, some people think that they were out hunting pheasants and deer. There's other investigators that believe that the because they're confining it, pheasants or deer they decided to hunt humans so it's the difference of you know if you're out hunting an animal you see the animal you shoot it you don't think anything of it versus if for some reason you know you have to get close to that animal or spend time with it and get to know it and then all of a sudden it's a real thing to you and now you have to pull the trigger, it's it's a totally different situation. And so law enforcement thinks that Alan had no problem shooting the shotgun into the crowd of teens, but he, remember, he wasn't one of the ones that executed the other teens, so it's, it's possible you know, some people just don't have that in them to, to commit quote-unquote cold-blooded murder. Not to say that what happened to Roger wasn't cold-blooded murder, but it just—it's a different situation if you're—you've got distance between you and you haven't conversed with the person, you haven't spent time with them, anything like that. Versus now they're defenseless and you're sitting three feet from them and you're going to take them somewhere and kill them. It's just—it's a different level of evil that you have to have that his brothers had, but maybe for some reason he didn't. And so now Sandra is now a grandmother and she has granddaughters about the age she was when the crime occurred. And so this, again, is difficult. She went through it with her own children and then she went through it with her grand, just going through it with her granddaughters of, of them knowing that she was the victim of this horrible crime at this age. And, you know, to, to know that about somebody who's close to you, that that's not something that's easy for for a child to, to fully grasp, to fully understand. So she's gone through that a couple times. And as part of the healing process, she helped write the book, Gitchy Girl, The True Story of Mass Murder and the Hunt for the Deranged Killers. Uh, and then she wrote the book in 2019. So if you want more of her actual story and everything she went through and everything like that, check out that book. Um, and November 17th of this year marks the 50th anniversary of the murders. and many people still flock to the site and it's been subject to paranormal investigations over the years many people believe both the spirits of the native americans because as i mentioned there are burial mounds at this site uh, so there, there's 
many people believe there's a lot of spirits that walk this site, and there's people that believe that the spirits of the four teens that were killed are also in this area. So, and if you if you hop online, you can actually see pictures of this this building, and it is when I say covered in graffiti, it is completely covered in graffiti. It's something where kids bring out cans of spray paint, basically spray over other people's graffiti on this site and on the rocks around it and, and everything. It's it's still a popular site for people to visit because of the murders and because it's still an area where teens can go and, and get away from the prying eyes of, of parents and and sometimes law enforcement, that kind of stuff. So uh, again, it's, it's actually a really beautiful area based on the photos. Uh, the rocks are kind of there's iron in the ground so the rocks get kind of stained this really beautiful red color if it's in the sun it's this uh, red or pink quartzite uh, rocks that come out of the ground with the river flowing through there there's a prairie so it's actually a really uh, serene and quiet and, and and beautiful place but it's just got this this horrible evil history to it and and uh, like I said, teens still hang out at the park and many still talk about that fateful night 50 years ago when evil walked uh, the grounds but that's it for today guys thanks for listening stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at trueblue at gmail.com you can also find me at true blue crime productions on facebook and support me via patreon at true blue crime productions thanks for listening guys talk to you later goodbye